There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing Professors David Nutt and Krista Algolander, both very experienced psychiatrists and neither from South Africa, although Krista is here so often that this is virtually a second home for him. So an episode with exclusively international guests, and I know that David has actually been in South Africa previously. Um, that was in relation to cannabis, as I recall, amongst maybe other trips that you've, that you've had here. And I, I've got I to use, been, I've been a few times. Yes. And I've got to use that word trips very carefully. <laughs> only because once, Only once in the Supreme Court. <laughs> okay, that's correct. So I've got to use the, the, the word trips carefully because today we're talking about psychedelics and psychiatry. Now, David is British. He's a psychiatrist and a neuropsychopharmacologist and the professor of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College in London. There are all kinds of other attachments to that, but I've tried to keep it simple. He's the editor of the Journal of Psychopharmacology, and he has been for many decades. He's the author and co-author of literally hundreds of scientific papers, as well as dozens of books. Two of them, the most recent ones that we were made aware of locally was Nut Uncut and Drink, The New Science of Alcohol and Your Health. And in fact, both of these were reviewed for South African psychiatry by our other guest, Krista Orgelander. David's very involved in drug policy and has been an advisor to government bodies. He's the chair of Drug Science, a charity that tells the truth about drugs. And he's currently involved in studying the effects of psilocybin, um, a psychedelic, obviously, in depression and related aspects of spirituality, which I find really interesting. Now, Krista is Swedish. He is a retired professor at Uppsala University, Sweden, an honorary professor at the University of Cape Town, as well as an honorary member of the South African Society of Psychiatrists. He's traveled extensively in South Africa, lecturing all over the place, most recently at the South African Society of Psychiatrists National Congress in the Drakensberg. He has had an interest in neuroaids, which he promotes in Europe because it's not well known there or virtually unknown. And his feeling is that it's important in terms of how we understand long-term COVID. So after that preamble introduction, David and Krista, welcome. Thank you for making the time to join me in discussing what I think is a very interesting therapeutic development in the field of psychiatry. And I don't want to be controversial here, but I think that we're looking at the emergence of a group of drugs that whilst regarded as illicit by the law, which is one of the issues law enforcement agencies, it's showing promise as a, as a therapeutic treatment or this group of drugs as, as therapeutic treatments under controlled circumstances, of course. So just to set the scene, when we speak of psychedelics, we're talking about a group of drugs, psilocybin, which will be the focus of our conversation. There's also LSD, acid, uh, MDMA, ecstasy, essentially hallucinogenic drugs which alter perception and experience and more specifically enhance perception of meaning. So a very interesting but potentially also very scary group of drugs where what should be generally a beautiful enhanced experience of reality can turn into sometimes one's worst nightmare. So for all the good, there can be other aspects. So turning to you, David, first, 
You've got a specific interest in the therapeutic possibilities of psilocybin, specifically in relation to the treatment of depression. Would you care to elaborate on that, please? Thanks. Yes, thank you. So um, just a little bit of background. Um, I'm, as you say, I'm a neuropsychopharmacologist, and that means I I use drugs to study the brain. Right. Of course, the brain is a chemical organ, and drugs are chemicals, and drugs mimic or interfere with neurotransmitters. Well, I've studied many, many different substances in humans, probably given more different classes of drugs to humans than anyone alive and maybe ever. Uh, and about 10, 12 years ago, I thought it would be quite interesting to complete the portfolio, so to speak, by doing psychedelics, which up to that point no one had properly studied using modern technology because of their illegal status. And um, well, we discovered many strange things as a, as a result of those experiments. Uh, which I can talk about later if you yes, want in terms absolutely. of the brain mechanisms. But, but one thing we weren't expecting was to discover that psilocybin which, and, and subsequently LSD, uh, we turn off the brain sites and the brain circuits, which we have learned uh, in, almost in parallel with, at the same time, are driving depression. Hmm. And so then we decided it would be interesting to see whether we could turn off depression with psilocybin and we conducted two trials, an open trial, and then very recently a controlled trial against escitalopram, showing that, yes, peculiar efficacy of psilocybin in resistant depression and also in um, people who um, didn't have uh, resistant depression. So just sorry, and, Dave, just, just to jump in there, when we talk about an open trial, so there the people knew what they were taking. And when we yeah, talk the first about, trial, that's yeah. right, the first trial published in Lancet Psychiatry when, four years ago. So that was a, an MRC-funded trial. We, just, we basically wanted to know if it was safe right. to give people psilocybin and also whether it might be useful. And we, so we took 20 people with resistant depression. They'd all failed on at least two antidepressants. They'd all failed uh, on CBT. Many had failed on over 10 antidepressants. And we gave them a single big dose, a single trip of psilocybin. Right. And they all improved. And some are still well. About 10% are still well. Now, two, three, maybe four or them are still well. Right. It's more like 20%. Now, they all got better, and, and the effect size of that single dose was about two. Now, okay, it's an open trial, so they know what they're getting, and there's a lot of psychotherapy, but it's way the most powerful single-dose treatment of resistant depression there's ever been. And, uh, and, and, it, and that actually in itself has spawned an enormous industry. There are 40 separate companies now that are studying psilocybin or related compounds in depression. So that's a significant development. I mean, once the pharmaceutical industry gets involved and they want to produce this on an industrial scale, there's obviously something that they're seeing in it of, of, of benefit. Now, obviously, the, the, the two trials you've spoken about, I, I came across uh, something in JAMA Psychiatry. That's the Journal of the American Medical Association. They've got the psychiatric version. And I came across a randomized control trial published in May 2021, which – under those circumstances, which are randomized control trial circumstances, yielded very much the same in terms of treating depression. But I found – what I found interesting in that was looking at the process. So I'm just curious, when you gave this single dose, what sort of circumstances were the patients in in terms of how long did they need to stay where they were and what sort of – uh, provisos were there in case things didn't work out and things went yeah, wrong. So that's really important consideration. So let me explain what the process is. It's, this isn't 
here's a prescription, go to your pharmacy, take the pill, exactly. take it at home. No, it's not. In essence, this is actually psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And uh, the way we do it then is that we, and the same, the group, the, 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 group, the study you're referring to is a Davis study in JAMA Psychiatry, the Johns Hopkins group. That's correct. And, and we're very similar in that sense. We use the same dose, 25 milligrams, and we use very similar procedures. Basically, a, a trip, a, psych- a therapeutic trip is a three-day event. The first day, uh, well, is, it's a three-day of meeting people event. Obviously, the screening beforehand, but let's right. assume you pass all the screening tests, you come in for the therapy. The first day... You meet your therapists. We call them guides. Right. We use two. Some other places use one. Uh, and they'll be with you all the way through the experience. So they'll prepare you for the experience. The next morning, they'll be there in the room with you. They will give you the medicine. They will sit with you for the hours it takes for the effect to come on and go off. And they'll be there in case you need them. And we always get permission uh, to hold people's hands if they want to. So if people say, hold my hand, then you okay. can do that without um, being challenging to them. And then the day after, we begin what's called the integration. And the integration is essentially getting people <clears throat> to talk at length about their experience and okay. begin to help them understand the benefit or the insights they've got in terms of how that makes sense of their illness and how they might begin to plan and plot a new way of thinking about themselves and other people in relationships so that they can overcome their depression. So during the course of the – well, you administer – and then obviously mm-hmm. the effect lasts, I understand, for about four to six hours. Although with the JAMA yes. study, they were kind of in therapy, so to speak, in terms of supportive, in a supportive environment for about 11 hours. Are they recording? Are you recording what they're experiencing? Are they being encouraged to talk about what they're experiencing whilst they're experiencing it? No, really, the very important point here. Uh, two very important points. I mean, the first is, it, it, when I, they said 11 hours, it is a kind of day because people come in at nine, it takes an hour to get them ready. Right. Okay. And then, you know, they go from 10, 30, six hours, that foot, you know, then we debrief them. So it is a, it is a whole day, um, but it's not overnight. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, we use psilocybin right. rather than LSD because an LSD trip will last up to 12, 15 hours. So you'd have to admit them to hospital, which, so we don't want to do that. So the, the first thing it is, it is essentially a day, a day's experience, but during the trip, we do not. We have no direction. We, um, for several reasons. The first is our experience of asking people to talk to us when they're in a psychedelic trip. Yeah. And this is we're talking about volunteers who've done the preliminary studies of the brain imaging studies. The experience is that they don't want to, and they think they're very irritated because usually there's somewhere a hell of a lot more interesting than talking to us. Okay. That's the first thing, right? Uh, and the second, and we don't want to intrude. On a, on a patient's experiences, because it might be you start talking to them and they, they're actually at the point of making sense of something in their life and then you disrupt them. And we know actually that sensory input during a trip can reset the mind. It can, okay. it can flip back. So it actually can d- completely disrupt. What we say to them is, look, go with the flow, be, be brave, be courageous. The press people, the experiences are usually not very pleasant. Right. They may have episodes or insight and, and great 
joy, but mostly it's tough because they're reliving traumatic events that made them depressed. They're living the consequences of their failures, etc. So usually it's a challenging trip. And occasionally they ask, they talk to us, occasionally they ask us to hold their hand, but mostly they do the work themselves. They have an eye mask on, they have you know, earphones if they want, and mostly they do, and they want to listen to music. And they, they basically do it themselves. And we say, go in and see if you can find something in there that makes sense, particularly the useful things for you. It's the next day that then we do the psychotherapy when they're not tripping so they can really focus on right. their memories and their insights. So, David, I mean, you technically would need to brief them about the fact that the experience yes. ultimately, hopefully, will be a positive one with an amelioration or reversal of the depressive state. But the process of getting there might be actually a very demanding one. We do. We brief them on that. Absolutely. We tell them, you know, we can't predict. And we tell them, honestly, that it will be challenging, but that they almost all of them, not everyone, but almost all of them get something out of it. Right. So I want to just turn briefly to, not necessarily briefly, but I just want to switch to, to Krista, because Krista, you're listening to this. And um, from a clinical perspective, you know, you, you're hearing David talk about this and, and, and you're reading about it in various publications. The question is, from a practical point of view, how do you see this? What do you see in terms of potential utility? Because as exciting as it is, because it's a kind of a new frontier, how practically do you look at this and say, mm, I don't know about this? <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure being here, Chris. And I want to say that uh, David Nutt is, is a, a giant when it comes to innovations. Right. And we owe him a lot for having pursue this line of, of research. Swedes uh, hardly get a blip when it comes to spirituality. We, uh, we are very low on that. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, so, but I will try to speak from a, an African perspective. Right. I've seen patients, African patients in Manguzi and Scottburg in KwaZulu-Natal, at Falkenberg Hospital, at Krishani Paragwanath Hospital, at Torah Hospital. Right. So I realized you have a completely different patient population here than among down-to-earth Swedes. So building a little bit on that limited exposure, I, I find it especially intriguing to look at psilocybin in the African patient population because of the strong presence of spirituality. So, but there we're saying we have an existing population who are connected to ancestors, to past generations, and they have a very strong spiritual life in that sense. But I think what I find interesting about psilocybin is the journey that is possible, which takes you along a spiritual path. And I think what I find Specifically interesting is that in the kind of Western urbanized setting, which has become increasingly secularized and almost decoupling from what we might have thought of as more traditional spiritual beliefs or feelings, this almost offers a pathway into something which is quite profound in that sense. So I think that the population Chris is talking about within the African context are kind of spiritually very in touch, whereas the psilocybin is coming from an environment or the research is coming from an environment which is potentially almost spiritually, I don't want to say bereft, but relatively speaking, is not necessarily as connected. So 
I don't think Krista answered my question in terms of practicality, though. We're looking at the practicalities, and I want to get back to David in terms of spirituality. So, Krista, in terms of practicality, where would you see, are we still purely experimental? Because, I mean, for example, we had a previous and an earlier podcast on ketamine. And, I mean, in a very short space of time, we've moved now to ketamine clinics. There are four in South Africa, actually. There are thousands of ketamine infusions that have been delivered. And we have emergency care physicians who actually deliver the ketamine working in collaboration with psychiatrists who recommend the patients. And, I mean, in a very short space of time, we're talking in the space of one or two years, we've seen a proliferation. And, of course, obviously, it's under controlled circumstances. So what I'm saying is we've moved very quickly with ketamine. And there we've got a kind of a repurposing of, a, of, a, of an anesthetic drug into a psychiatric drug. Now we're taking psilocybin, and I'm wondering to what extent this will move in the same way. So, so just, Krista, sticking with you, what, do, what are your thoughts on practicality? Well, it's, I don't think this should be rushed. I think it's very important to ground uh, the results in proper clinical trials, placebo-controlled and all of that. And um, it needs to be evidence-based right. before you can actually apply psilocybin in any kind of patient population. It, it's, all, it's always the case that when before a drug is registered, it's usually been tried in about 3,000 patients. Right. But then also, that's a very small number if you consider all the unusual things that could happen once you get out there in the clinic. I think that's the issue really is because, you know, when you work in clinical trials, you're working with a very carefully selected population. Once you start moving out into the population, it's kind of undifferentiated. And of course, that's when you really start to learn about what goes on when you're out there. Yes. So I, I think that's very prudent. And I think that from what I've seen, there is a lot of promising evidence. And so there's a I think there's a path that we've got to walk, not least of all because it seems to me in psychiatry we've we've kind of reached a I wouldn't say an end point, but we've almost gone as far as we can with what we've got, and now we're starting to broaden the horizons and and just extend the the repertoire. But David, I wanted to come back to you in terms of this issue of spirituality because I know that that is something which seems to be an emergent experience, this kind of richness, and I just want to mention that I. In preparation, I actually went and dug out an old copy of uh, Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception. It's really old because it, <laughs> it's nicely yellowed. And, I mean, that for me was was really interesting and in, in terms of his experience. But there he was using mescaline, which is not psilocybin, but I think it's within the same kind of broad category. And, and he was speaking about this intensely spiritual experience in terms of colors, shapes, understanding. So, David, what are your, what are your thoughts in that sense? And the spiritual experience. Yeah, so uh, a few things to say about it. I mean, I think the first thing is that very few people don't come out of uh, a psychedelic treatment without some sense of wonder and opportunity and uh, fascination with the capacity of their mind. And even when we give it to people who are not mentally ill, just our normal healthy volunteers, uh, they, they often say that they feel better afterwards. They feel more connected with the world. They feel more acutely visions and feelings. So it's, it's, it's very hard not to have a, an, a mind opened by psilocybin or other psychedelics. As you say, psilocybin, masculine. 
Right. And it's, they all work on the serotonin receptors. So it's almost a universal experience. And, um, and for many people, that is a spiritual experience. I mean, I think even Swedes might find being more connected with the outside world, uh, especially in the summer. Uh, spiritual experience. <laughs> well, give it a try. <laughs> well, certainly maybe in winter specifically when there's very little sunshine and very little daylight. But you see, I mean, for me, that's a very interesting issue because obviously these agents or substances work specifically with certain neurotransmitters, serotonin, mm-hmm. glutamate, etc. And so it, it kind of struck me. I thought to myself, well, are we just neurotransmitters? Because essentially this is the pathway through neurotransmitters mediating that process towards spirituality. And then eventually you kind of ask yourself, what is spirituality? Is it just neurotransmitters? Or is there something deeper and more and more meaningful? Because I, I almost find it a little bit reductionistic where I say, well, we're just, we're just neurotransmitters. We're, we're nothing more. And so I don't know what your thoughts would be on that. But essentially, we're looking at a chemically mediated pathway towards spirituality. And then does that diminish the experience in terms of what it means? Not for me because I'm a, I'm a psychopharmacologist. So right. it's, it's like saying, you know, Understanding that nerves connect through electrical transmission down the axon, does that diminish the fact that the, that, that connection of nerves we call the brain produces works yes. of wonderful art and technology such as we're using to talk to each other today? No. I think it's a, it's a different level of thinking and uh, I think it's perfectly possible to, to understand that your eyes have been uh, opened, so to speak, by a pharmacological agent. And, and the opening is, I think, just as m- meaningful as if they're opened by what people have Traditionally used, like right. fasting or, okay. you know, or, um, sleep deprivation or enormous exercise. You know, so people have sought altered consciousness in different ways and pharmacological ways of, you know, have, or meditation even. So, they, you know, pharmacologists has another way of perturbing what you might call your sort of sense organ of the brain to understand a little bit more about its capacities. So I think what I'm understanding is it really doesn't matter how you get there. It's a point of getting there and that if you experience it, it's real. It's what it is and how it impacts upon you in terms of your daily life. It doesn't really matter what the pathway is. You get there and it has a positive impact. And I'll tell you why I asked the question yes. because yes. often, yes. often when you deal with patients who are depressed and you put them on an antidepressant, they, they kind of say, well, am I just a function of the antidepressant? Am I just me because of a tablet? And I think often patients find that very unsettling where Eventually, I come back to what David is saying. So, well, it doesn't really matter. You're still you. You're just a different you, and you're a, a you that can now experience the world in in a way that is that is more comfortable and and more pleasant. But it's not artificial, because I think that's really the point I was making, or the point no, that I wanted to get to. That's a very good point. The, the artificiality. I understand exactly what you're saying, and it isn't artificial in any, because otherwise you'd have to concede that everything goes on in your brain's artificial, because everything goes on in your brain is a chemical process, Correct. as well as an electrical process. But but I want to say a couple of things. It's just, yes. you know, which aren't yet generally known. And, and one of the most fascinating things we've discovered, and it's not generally known, because paper's not published, but it'll come out quite soon, in, in a journal called Nature Medicine, which is a pretty prestigious journal. Absolutely. We, we have shown in our study comparing psilocybin with escitalopram that they work in fundamentally different ways. They work in different parts of the brain and they produce different changes in the brain. And if I might give you the analogy. Yes. Um, the analogy I would, I use for SSRIs, for escitalopram, um, 
is the analogy of a broken bone. When you break a bone, you set the bone in plaster so that you don't damage the bone anymore, and so it can be held safe until it heals, and that takes weeks and months. And what antidepressants do is the same thing to the limbic system, the emotional circuit of the brain, which is overstressed in depression, overreactive, overstressed, and often um, malfunctioning. Escitalopram antidepressants protect the stressed brain from stress. Right. And over a period of four, six, eight weeks, the brain heals. Right. What psilocybin does is it works in the cortex, not in the limbic system, it works in the cortex, and it disrupts repetitive, ruminative, what you might call sort of tram-line thinking that depressed people have. It breaks those processes, and so people are liberated. So people can actually think like they used to think before they became depressed. So it's, it's a, it is a fundamentally different way of lifting depression. And, uh, and that's probably why it works in some people in whom the traditional drugs don't. So I think that, Krista, I want to bring Krista back in here. I mean, this suggests to me that aside from randomized control trials and making sure that it's safe, there's also going to need to be patient selection because some patients might not necessarily cope particularly well with the more um, active coping that the psilocybin and hallucinogenics might promote. Krista, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on patient selection? How would we go about that? Yes. Well, spirituality is not something that we measure uh, normally in psychiatry, uh, we measure other dimensions, um, sometimes part of personality measures like the temperament and character inventory. I use that to look at the effects of the SSRIs, and it was a remarkable um, result in that um, beyond symptom reduction and whatever, you had patients becoming more decisive, um, more able to separate their own needs from other people, collaborating with other people, and they had a, a stronger sense of self. Um, this was all, all captured by Peter Kramer, a psychoanalyst in Boston who wrote a book Listening to Prozac, right. which captured this uh, extraordinary introduction of Prozac in the American patient population. So even in the Western society, you can see profound effects that may be different, somewhat um, difficult to separate from this concept of spirituality. Well, I think what's very important here is that is that you're describing a range of changes that go beyond one's mood. Because I think that very often patients see antidepressants as something, I mean, you know, colloquially they call it happy pills. And I say, well, actually antidepressants are not happy pills per se. They will kind of eliminate depression. They won't necessarily make you happy. That's what happens maybe afterwards in terms of how you live your life. But certainly, Krista, what you're describing there in terms of the range of other changes that take place go way beyond just I feel happy. And I think that's very important in terms of how people understand what antidepressants actually do. Your comments on that, Krista? And I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a reductionist. Uh, I, it would be wonderful to have Richard Dawkins here uh, <laughs> saying that um, our emotions are basically the executioners of our genes. Uh, so, <laughs> our, uh, so, right. As opposed to the other way around, our genes but, are the executioners of our emotions. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there is a disorder that really puzzles me, and I have big difficult. When I work in an inpatient unit, I have so much trouble with borderline personality disorder. Oh yes, or what's called today emotionally unstable disorder. Anyway, these patients are 
up and down in their emotions all the time. I would love to see what psilocybin could do to that patient population. The only drug that's been properly uh, evaluated in borderline patients is cutiapine. Right. Uh, it's difficult to study borderline patients, but because there is such a, a quick uh, effect here, yes. that I would really want to see that. I think that's a very interesting. David, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's a very interesting patient population, and obviously for the audience, we're talking about borderline personality disorder, which is characterized by mood fluctuations amongst a whole host of other things and not to be confused with bipolar disorder in terms of the difference of moods from depression to mania. This is this is not quite that. Um, but David, what are your thoughts on psilocybin and borderline personality disorder? Well, I'm in favor of research. I, I'm going to be cautious here because <laughs> yes. I, uh, you know, borderline personality disorder is a bit of a graveyard for therapy, for psycho pharmacological therapy and psychotherapy so I think if it's going to be done it's got to be done very carefully by experts in a a very gentle way because um, these patient group is you know they suffer a lot and they've often been abused and they they have a great deal of difficulty in their life and I wouldn't want to make them worse so I I think yes but um, very gently does it I think in that sense given how psilocybin works and this kind of reliving of things that you've experienced, I think this would be a particularly tricky population because often there is history of abuse. And obviously there are these um, difficult interpersonal relationships, substance issues, sexual promiscuity, self-harm. There are all of these kinds of things. So I think that could be a particular – as much as Krista might be interested, and I do think it's interesting, it would be a particularly vulnerable group of individuals, which I suppose brings me to one of the key issues – and central to, to, to clinical medicine is do no harm. So as much yes. as we're speaking about the therapeutic possibilities and what the early studies are starting to show uh, in that there is promise, what about the downside? What about the risks and what about doing no harm? David, from your experience? Let me just talk to that. Yes, I wanted to pick up on a comment that uh, Krista made Um now, the great thing about working with psilocybin, and actually one of the reasons we were allowed to do a study with psilocybin in depressed people without any formal safety data hmm. was because I spoke to our regulators and I said, look, we know a million young people in Britain every year take magic mushrooms, which is psilocybin. Right. We've, they've been doing it for the last 20 years or 30 years and there's never been a death. I think that's pretty good safety data. You know, it's definitely more than the 3,000 that Krista was mentioning. Sure. And they said yes. They said, okay. They said, absolutely, you're right. You know, it does look to be pretty safe. So they, they allowed us to do the study without doing having GMP production because we couldn't get it anywhere in the world and without having a proper safety dossier. So uh, historically, you know, history does tell us that, that these drugs are very safe. So, yes. What side effects do we see? Well, yes. we haven't really seen any in our trials. But in the past, to, the biggest concern is that you might provoke psychosis. Yeah. And yes, so that's why we exclude anyone with a history of psychosis or a first-degree family relative with psychosis. We have also excluded anyone with um, history, family history of bipolarity as well. Right. Probably because, again, slightly concerned that you might precipitate a manic episode or sure. you probably won't so those are the two major exclusion criteria and in terms of enduring side effects well we've put we've had so i suppose we've got a hundred patients now and probably 
several hundred volunteers. We haven't seen any enduring problems. We had one bad trip, but that was when we gave someone LSD in a in an MRI scanner, and that's Ooh. probably the worst place in the world. Have a, okay. a, they had a, they were drug experience. It wasn't their first time, but right. they didn't like it. Fair enough. Um, and then occasionally people complain of sort of visual hallucinations, visual illusions, this little flashing lights in their eyes. Right. We haven't had that, but other other people have talked about that. And so it, there is a, a you know. They're not. These are powerful drugs, and they, you know, you can have bad trips, and you can have side effects, but they're not as dangerous as people have made out in the past. So I came across a paper recently talking about microdosing, and so yes. obviously I think that the sort of dose response is, is going to be very interesting. Have you have you kind of settled on what would be a reasonable dose? And then the next question would be: How often, in order to sustain? Uh, a therapeutic outcome would that be required so let's talk about the second one first you know we would love to redose some of the people who did very well in our first treatment the resistant depressions who did very well and then relapsed we'd love to redose them we can't because we can only use this as a trial right we haven't got the money to do a trial on people who'd relapsing after silence so my feeling is that for people with chronic depression that's gone on for years or decades you might have to have it have a, an experience maybe two or three times a year in order to sort of suppress the depressive perturbations i think there are people who have been particularly those who have been traumatized in childhood in whom depression is the you know is the way their brain works and, and and getting rid of that you know may be very difficult so what we have to do is push it down like we maybe put a cancer you know knock it down you know for a few years it can keep pushing it down so i think perhaps once or twice a year might be something we have to do but remembering that some people stay well but well, have stayed well for, for for many years and and those tend to be people who've got a single ep- single cause of their depression so something and it happened and that they, they got depressed okay. and they haven't been able to to reformulate their thinking about it to get closure psychedelics might allow you to get closure and then give you that enduring um enduring benefit uh, of wellness so microdosing is a great different way of giving a psychedelic it's by definition you're trying to give a dosage you don't notice you're taking uh, and uh, and the argument there is that it does something subliminal and uh, subconscious and it loosens up your creative circuits loosens up maybe your mood it is completely plausible that it works but over a long period so if you're going to depression with microdosing i suspect you're looking at a, a six to ten week course in the same way as you're looking at a six to ten week course of an ssri probably working in, in similar ways although i can't be sure until someone's done the study but it's very difficult to do a microdosing study because a microdose is just as illegal as a macrodose absolutely and i think that's part of the problem is that we're dealing with illicit substances so i think that the, the question would be to what extent the regulatory authorities will look at this kind of data and be rethinking their position on what constitutes an illicit substance if it's got therapeutic utility. But I was curious in, in something that you said, and, and, and I know that it's not hard science, where you're talking about three times a year, and I want to turn to to Krista in, in that sense. If we could find a product, Krista, that had the capacity to alleviate depression and you only needed to take it three times a year as opposed to every day, I mean, how would that be as a selling point for compliance and ensuring? Because many of our psychiatric patients are not compliant, and I think compliance is a is a major issue. So, how do you see that, Krista? Well, I, I'm thinking of electroconvulsive therapy, where mm-hmm. you have patients who come in 
two, three or four times a year for a pre, for um, what is it called? Uh, they get they have an uh, electroconvulsive uh, therapy therapeutic session, even though they are not depressed. Right. So it, it's like a prophylaxis for recurrent depression, and it works. Uh, patients love it, and they they just come in uh, to the Uppsala University Clinic. Uh, three, I believe it's three times a year, and it works. So it, I can't see any problem with that. Um, I do want to um, bring up a non-psychiatric aspect, and that's uh, terminal illness. Yes. Um, my daughter works in palli- is a specialist in palliative medicine, and she faces the issue of spirituality every day mm-hmm. in her unit with dying patients. So uh, traditionally you would call a priest to uh, uh, do his things, uh, but is there a role for psilocybin in terminally ill patients? Uh, what do you think, David? Totally. And, of course, that goes back to the uh, the man whose book we just we looked at at the beginning of this conversation. Huxley. Aldous Huxley. He, yes. He was dying of uh, probably laryngeal or mouth cancer and uh, probably from secondary to smoking. And he um, he persuaded his uh, partner at the time, his wife, to uh, to inject him with LSD so he could float away from this life into the the bigger universe. And uh, I've always had a strong belief that there's well, there was a lot of research done in the sixties that it could help people come to terms with dying. In fact, there have been two studies of psilocybin, mm-hmm. one at Johns Hopkins, one at New York University recently, showing again it helps people come to terms with terminal illness, makes helps them make more sense of what's happening to them and makes them more optimistic that their death isn't going to be just the end because of course it isn't you know we all know that every single atom in our body was made in the big bang so we're all we're all 14 billion years old <laughs> we just we just reconstructed some of these atoms in a slightly different fashion to what they were before <laughs> they'll be there after we're dead i think that's a very important indication because i've seen it called end of life anxiety and I think that this is where they're starting to speak about the potential for, for psilocybin under those circumstances. And David, obviously you're referring to Aldous Huxley himself. Krista, I think yes. that you've also connected with that via your daughter's work with terminally ill patients. So I do think that beyond depression, there are potentially other indications that uh, are very therapeutic. And I mean, if, if our job is to do no harm and to alleviate suffering – I think that's a very interesting consideration in terms of its utility. David and Krista, we're coming to the end of our time for this particular episode. Maybe we'll revisit it in the future. But um, I really want to thank you for for joining me and, and, and for joining us, the, the audience. And obviously the aim of today's podcast was not in any way to promote illicit substance use, but simply to inform you, the audience, of emerging treatment options being discovered in unlikely places. And as with any therapeutic intervention, a key element is appropriate information so as to make informed decisions to provide informed consent, obviously in consultation with a suitably trained and qualified professional. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.